Welcome to Business Book Talk, the best place to discover great business books. Bob Garlick has talked to over 400 authors, and his questions and comments always get you the best information about the book, the author, and the ideas behind each book. So let's see who Bob's talking to this week. Hey everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got the employee experience, how to attract talent, retain top performers, and drive results. I've got Tracy Maylett here today and Matthew Ride with me, and uh, this should be quite an interesting show because, uh, you know, we don't often do two authors at the same time, so we'll just see how these guys duke it out as far as content. Guys, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity, Bob. Yeah, looking forward to talking about this. So, you know, let's start with uh, you, Matt. This is a pretty bodacious thing you say at the, uh, at the beginning, you know, attract talent, retain top performers, drive results. This is critically important for an organization to move forward and grow. Why do you think um, or, or do you think companies are fumbling the ball when it comes to these type of things? Some companies are and others have started to figure it out. But the reason it's so important is that we've seen a switch in the way we use labor, and the relationship between an employee and, and the employer. Uh, Seventy years ago, it, it was simply manpower. We needed the energy and the manpower of that employee to accomplish something. But today, it's much more of a knowledge-based economy, and therefore you really need people's creativity, innovation, and contributions. And so you're looking for the best and brightest, not just the next person up that can wield a hammer or work on a machine uh, line or something along those those lines. You've got to have talent, and that's why uh, that's the the reason for the book is to acknowledge that shift and to give employers some tools and resources to try to change the way they attract, retain, and engage. Well, you know, it's interesting because you know China is right now in a, a transitional stage when they're they're trying to actually move the whole country into that type of position, uh, and here we are in North America. It's been happening for quite a long time, and yet companies still haven't got it uh, right. Do you think that um, it's it's a fundamental problem as getting out of the I wouldn't say like dark ages, but but the the, the industrial revolution headspace into the more modern, um, creative-based, uh, like you were saying, uh, um, I don't even want to say service-based, but more, more um, intellectual approach to doing business. Yeah, I think it's, the reason I think it's a challenge is that leaders, uh, those in the executive functions, the C-suite, those in operations, they've historically viewed this as the role of human resources. And you just you go take care of the hiring over there and let me know how it's going. And I'm going to focus on the, the core disciplines of operations, efficiency, marketing, finance. And the reality is, is that's not good enough. You can't just put it on the side. Leaders at the very top have to own the employee experience so that they're beginning to have an inflow of candidates and employees that are going to give them the type of intellectual property they need in order to win. You know, I, I'm a real uh, advocate of um, working with HR because I think a lot of, of executives and, you know, even middle management really screw up because they they just dump it on HR and then they get the wrong type of candidates and then there's, like, well, but this isn't the right person. Well, yeah, but you've got to give input. You've got to, you've got to be part of the process. Getting new staff, I think, is... is um, 
number one, very difficult to get with budgetary restraints. But if you are lucky enough to be given a budget so you can hire somebody new, why aren't you putting a tremendous amount of your own personal time and resources to get an amazing person? Well said. I don't, I don't know that I could add to that. I think you described exactly our view on the matter and why we think it's of critical importance. Hmm. So what do you think companies need to do to get there? It, first of all, they have to make a shift. They have to understand that this, they have to elevate the HR function to the main uh, purview of, of the company, meaning there has to be a seat at the table for HR. And number two, uh, executive leaders need to understand that this is now one of their most important functions is staffing and finding the best talent. And I think it's that change will trigger the rest to fall into place. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about millennials because this is the first time in the basically history of the United States that they've had, I think it's over 65% of the working workforce is uh, millennials. And um, they have a lot of sway of what's going on. Do you think that this is a, a, like a tipping point and a, and a huge opportunity for organizations to do a radical shift and, and, and kind of swing towards your, the philosophy that's talked about in this book? I think that the term millennials is misunderstood. I don't know that any of us really understand. It's convenient for us to put a label to try to, in one, kind of with one word, describe an entire group. And I, I don't know that it's useful in some respects. I do think that those uh, that we will put into the category of millennial, that they have... Um, they understand what they want and need from technology. They understand what they want and need from companies. And they do have a, a value set that might be different than their parents. And so it is an opportunity to tap into their creativity. Um, but I don't know that you have to go around planning for the millennials. This isn't, I don't think our book is about how to plan for the millennial revolution, for example. I think, I think we assume that everybody wants pretty much the same thing and that we just need to be cognizant that millennials have a different reference point and a different set of expectations. But at the same time, they are, we're all the same. I was a millennial once, you too were a millennial once, Bob, and I, I don't know that we were all that different, really. Matt, I think, I think one of the keys here is, is not so much the millennial piece as the fact that we've moved, Bob used the phrase a little bit earlier, we've moved into, you know, we moved from the industrial revolution. We've now moved into what we refer to as the age of the employee. So the concept here is not the division between um, Generation Xers and Millennials, et cetera. It's the whole concept of the employee now has choices that that employee did not have previously. You know, we look at Bureau of Labor statistics uh, in the U.S. and the numbers that are there, and we realize for the first time in, in, in almost forever that we now have the number of people looking for jobs is so much less than the number of job openings. It's just absolutely incredible. So people... Employees now have choices, not just millennials or other areas, and we need to be aware of those choices. Okay, now when you say, let's define that word choices, what, what you say that there, there's more talent out there, they're more highly educated, they have more options to choose from. What, what are you really trying to get down to? Well, I think Matt can address this a little bit better than I can also, but along those lines, we have employees currently – if I'm an employee with a lot of talent, and that's one of the bases of the, of the book here is the concept of we, we have employees with talent, I now have the opportunity to go elsewhere should I choose to do so. 
So we're now for the first time in, in many, many years and decades, the employee has the ability to make the choice of whether or not to engage in that organization or disengage in that organization or go somewhere else. And that's something we haven't experienced over the last number of decades. I, th I think it's a change in, in the way we deliver tech, the way technology has allowed us to deliver our goods and services. So primary, in, in say 1960, you showed up to the employer where the employers had the tools and resources you need to accomplish your job. You, you couldn't replicate that. And now you can, you can, you can replicate um, an office scenario with a few thousand dollars and a good internet connection. And because of that, you can choose to work wherever you want. And companies who are seeking for talent are willing to have um, organizations that are decentralized and have individuals working remotely. And therefore, there's been a power shift because there's no longer, I go to my employer's place, I use my employer's tools, and I'm, and I'm therefore limited in my options. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I love the concept that, you know, for, for practically nothing, you can set up a company these days and the capabilities of that company far outweigh the millions of dollars that you would have had to spend, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So I think really one of the issues that employers have is if you're going to decentralize, it's finding employees that are, uh, for use of a better word, adults, people that do their job, but when they make a mistake, they correct that mistake and the report and say, oh, by the way, I kind of screwed up here. This is how I fixed it just to let you know. And then they move on instead of the traditional style employee that is will work until they get stuck and then stop working. And hopefully an, a supervisor will come by and say, oh, you're stuck. Here's how to fix the problem. So do you think um, we're kind of going into to a realm where you're, you're going to have to give your employees way more latitude and way more responsibilities? Well, I think that's kind of, I think you're right on the one end where it says basically we have a lot more different possibilities that we need to be aware of. But at the same time, I think we're also, we've gone too far to one extreme to where we say now we need to be focusing on remote working employees and complete level of autonomy. Really, one of the things that we point out in this book is that the, the concept of autonomy is not even possible unless there are guidelines in which to operate. One of the things we mentioned, and we'll talk a little bit later on, uh, hopefully in this interview, is about what we refer to as a transactional contract. The whole concept that, that basically, in order to be an effective employee, I need to understand the rules under which I operate. It's very much like a, as if it were a, a kite, for example. That kite needs to have that string, but once that string's in place, that, that tether, that kite's free to move about. Same thing that happens particularly with today's employees. And what we assume is that employees want complete freedom. It's even a level of anarchy. And in reality, what they're after is a set of rules, a set of guidelines, and then they can be completely free and empowered within that set of guidelines. We call that the transactional contract. It's those, that set of rules, um, operating procedures, et cetera, that say, employee, we need you to bring your whole self to this equation. Here are the parameters. Here are the fences in which to operate. Now you go for it. So your, your question was a great one because basically the, the concept is that the employee needs to be able to bring him or her best self uh, within that, those parameters and then let loose. And that's what the employee experience is about. Well, you know, it's interesting because really this is what the book is really about. For, for me, it really it takes management, says, hey, management, you are responsible 
for all these great things that you can do in your company, not your employees, not the managers that uh, don't get it. You as uh, an employee that have read this book have to basically do your due diligence, have to decide, well, you know what? There are rules, but what are those rules? And there are job descriptions, and what are those job descriptions? And they say, yeah, but everybody knows that. No, they don't. How many times have you gone into a job and said, oh, we're hiring you for X, and then two months in, you may... I would say 10% of your job is X, and then the other 90% is a bunch of other stuff they've glommed on, which makes it very difficult for you to do what you were hired to do. That's exactly right. Well, this is a good time to talk about one of the basic concepts of this book that we refer to as expectation alignment. The whole concept of if I'm an employee, you're my employer, we need to align expectations. So one of the studies that we cite in this in, in this book. It was an interesting one. It was the researchers from uh, Ohio State University, I believe it was. This was actually funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. And one of the things they were looking at is relationships. So when we look at relationships, they happen to focus on married couples, but this also applies to organizations, and I'll explain that. So what they did is they conducted eight tests over a period of six-month interviews or intervals for five, uh, four or five years, I believe, four years. And what they did is they looked at married couples. They took 82 couples to start with, and by the end of the study, four years later, there were 17 that were divorced. So what they did is they took those remaining 65 couples, and they said, we want to look at a couple of factors. One is we want to look at the environment in which they're, they're living, they're operating. So these were finances, these were ability to communicate, things like this. They also looked at their skills. So the relationship skills, do you have communication skills? Um, are we able to deal with conflict, et cetera? And then they also looked at another factor that was very interesting. These were expectations, expectations they had of each other. So I, for example, if I'm with my spouse, my wife, I, I have certain expectations of her. She has certain expectations of me. So they looked at all these factors and made a lot of comparisons over these four years. And it was very interesting because what they found is that those who had poor relationship skills and they also um, had high expectations of each other. So I expect a lot, my wife expects a lot out of me, but we also have poor relationship skills. Those marriages really didn't last. They experienced sharp declines in marital satisfaction. And that's no real aha, that's no big surprise there. Those with low expectations and low skills also experienced sharp declines. What was really interesting is that those who entered the relationship with high expectations you know, of, of each other, and limited ability to fix bad relationships, they were in for a pretty bumpy ride. But those with lower expectations for the relationship and poor relationship skills, so I have low expectations and poor relationship skills, they didn't experience that same level of decline. So what the researchers found from the study was that it's about expectations. Um, we can we can have a difficult environment. We may have even poor relationship skills, the ability to communicate and things like this, and we may have uh, financials that are, are poor, but it all depends on what we expect from the other part of the relationship. Now, let's apply this back to the employees and, and the organization. What we find is that when employees have their expectations met in the organization, they're much more likely to engage. But if I come in and have these high expectations of what it looks like and I experience something different, then I'm much likely to be much more likely to be disengaged. So it's less about the environment, 
It's less about all these perks and and benefits and all this than it is whether or not my expectations of an employee as an employer are being met. You know, you, you touched on a very interesting thing there because it's the expectation the employee has of the company. And a, a lot of that is brand. I mean, you, you have companies out there like Apple and Microsoft and, and uh, McDonald's, and, and they have very strong brands. And it's very easy for us to say, oh, yeah, this company is like X. So if I work with that company, uh, it's going to kind of be like that. But I would say 90% of all other companies don't really have a very strong brand presence or, or a strong brand message. So when employees are going in, they have uh, less of an understanding that they might even have a, f a fantasy about what they're going into. So what part of the, the you know, who's responsible for that? It, it's kind of like, does that happen at the beginning of the interviews or should it happen once the employee gets hired? When should you start to, you know, um, uh, I don't want to uh, use the word, but uh, break the illusion. But, you know, a, a lot of people come in with, with, with really ridiculous expectations of, of pay or the way they'll be treated and stuff like that. And it, does it make sense for the interview to say, hey, just to let you know, this is a really great place to work, but it's also tough and it's nothing like what you probably expect. Um, do you think that type of candor is what um, potential employees need or expect? Um, I think, Bob, that uh, they absolutely expect it. And moreover, you're wasting your time and money to sugarcoat things. You need to find the best talents you can. And every time you are continuing the hiring process and then you hire somebody and they don't work out and you have to deal with that, you're, you're distracting yourself from what you really need to get done, which is your business objectives. So um, here at, at our firm, we have really tried to be very clear about what the role is, about the nature of it, and it has it's paid dividends because we have people who are very clear about what happens day one, and I think they appreciate the honesty and the open, the, the transparency, and it has helped us find the right talent, and we've and, and reduce the turnover rate. Well, I think one of the companies that we use as an example of this, we call this the brand contract, by the way, the, the idea that every relationship has three contracts, the brand contract, the transactional contract, and the psychological contract. Bob, you're referring to the brand contract, and I think Matt did a good job with that. Um, the, look, for example, a company like Amazon. Amazon lately has been through the press because of some employee practices that were well publicized, that were that viewed negatively by the public. The thing about Amazon is that Amazon has a brand that says, if you come to work for us, yeah, you're, you'll work your tail off. It's going to be a difficult job. Um, these may be working in situations that you don't want to be in, may be difficult for you. Um, and by the way, you're going to be working some long hours. But in return, you're going to add a bullet point to your resume that will stay with you for a long time, that will build this expertise. Well, people don't go into Amazon expecting Nerf Wars and foosball tournaments. They go into Amazon expecting an environment that if they work their rear end off and they, they, they really make it happen, then they're going to add experience to the resume. Amazon does a good job of setting that brand. And what we're saying is that company, just you need to let 
people know who you are, what those expectations are. If you come to this company, what is it like? Are you, uh, do we emphasize family? Do we emphasize coworker relationships? Do we emphasize working hard? What really is our brand? And then be honest and true to that brand. That goes back to that, that expectation alignment. You know, Tracy, uh, one of the things I like about Amazon, as we've talked about many times, is it's an example of how their brand contract is aligned with their overall mission. You don't yeah, want exactly. you don't want a culture that is free flowing when you're dealing with tight deadlines, accuracy, shipping. You know, people want precision, and I believe their culture matches that business objective quite well. Well, you know, there's nothing better than having a company that's that's got its shit together. But what about companies that really they need this book because Amazon, you know, you could guys at Amazon could read this book and say, Oh yeah, we're doing this and oh yeah, this is oh, this is a nice little tip. Compared to a company that desperately, desperately needs this book, what's what's what type of companies um or what percentage of companies out there that need this type of book? Well, I think that goes to the purpose of the book. Um, there was a phrase as we were writing this book that kept coming to mind, and that's they're digging in the wrong place. So if you remember, I'm referring back to pop culture here, um, Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark. It goes that many years back here. So we have Indy and his friend. They're looking for the staff of they're, – they're looking for the, the Lost Ark. They use, if you remember, the, the staff of Ra, and on top of that, there's a golden headpiece. And what's happening is the Nazis are digging for the, the Ark and they're not able to find this ark, and they take the, the staff to this white-haired mystic, hoping to decipher what's on the staff. And the old man looks at it and translates the markings into instructions for the staff's height that allow them to understand where to dig. They look at each other and realize all of a sudden at the same time that the staff that they're using, the Nazis are using, for the search is too long. And so they look at each other, and in unison they say they're digging in the wrong place. We wrote this book because companies are digging in the wrong place. Everybody is talking about the customer experience, it, 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 rightly so, or CX. Um, in fact, an HBR study was recently released said that with every 1.3% improvement in customer satisfaction, revenue increases by half a percent. So that can be quite a bit. Um, in fact, it was Sam Walton that said there's only one boss, the customer, and he can basically fire anyone in the company by spending his money elsewhere. So it's important. Um, there's a lot of money being spent on the customer experience. In fact, last year it was estimated about $4 billion were spent in customer management services, and that's supposed to increase in 2020 to $11 billion. So the problem here, it, it's great we're focusing on the customer experience. Wonderful. But it's also not generating a commensurate return in customer experience. So we're saying organizations today are digging in the wrong place. If you want to create a world-class customer experience, the organization has to first create a world-class employee experience. It all begins with your employees. Uh, they're the ones who work directly with the customer. They know the customer needs. They are the ones that develop the innovative products. Yet we're going about it backwards. So what's happening is we're focusing first on the customer experience when it's the employees that dictate what happens there. When employees have an extraordinary experience, your customer will also. So to answer your question directly, this book is written to those who want to create an employee experience that will drive results. 
Let's dig into the book a little bit. I mean, it's broken down into sections. Is it a type of book that you you should read from cover to cover, or should you just jump into the section or the topic that you think is most relevant to you uh, as a business? I think you should read it cover to cover because the concepts are they build upon each other. So it's it it's one of those books that's about a theory and approach as opposed to uh, more of a it's not a how to manual. You don't do X, Y, but it does give you the theory. And if you miss some of the dialogue and discussion in Chapter 1, you may not quite understand everything we're getting at in Chapter 4. Now, you know, uh, back to the title, um, I think probably one of the hardest things to, to deal with is, you know, driving results. Once you get the right people on the bus, you get that person in the right seat, how do you continue to motivate and push that person forward so they feel that they're challenged, they feel that they're learning stuff, that, you know, that their resume is building, um, and and they're in love with their job. I mean, that, I think, is one of the toughest things for, for a company to actually pull off. Sure it is. Uh, there's this concept of expectation alignment that the, ba- that the book is based on. In fact, I think that was one of our original titles. The, the idea that it's not just one way. So uh, one of the things, and 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 Matt's been doing a lot of research on this one and picked this up very nicely. The concept of, you, you mentioned millennials, the idea that we're so focused on how do we take care of the millennials that we're forgetting to ask the question, now how do they take care of us as well? And by that, what I'm talking about is this isn't just a one-way process, this employee experience. It's not just about how the organization can make the greatest experience for the employee. Uh, there's a reason for it. And that's because we expect results back from the employee. We expect that part of our expectation is that, yes, we will provide you the, the great work environment, but you need to choose to be engaged. Um, we, Bob, you and I had an opportunity to talk about our last book. Uh, you, we actually conducted an interview on the, our book, Magic, uh, Five Keys um, to, um, for, for the Employee Experience. And one of the things that we talked about was MAGIC is actually an acronym. It stands for Meaning, Autonomy, growth, impact, and connection, meaning autonomy, growth, impact, connection. So to answer your question, we need to be creating an environment in which an employee can experience those five keys to unlock that power of employee engagement. In return, we expect them to engage. We expect them to deliver on the customer experience. Yeah, it, you know, it, the more, you know, I, I talk with people about different things to do and, and strategies. I think one of the biggest thing that's missing is is um, clear and precise communication. And as obvious as that sounds, I think the hardest thing to do for a owner of a business, a C-suite person, is to really be able to bring it down to the level where the employee gets it. It's so difficult because you're, you know, at C-suite level, you're you're thinking five years ahead. You're steering the your your company towards uh, specific opportunities that only you guys can see. But then, down in the in the ranks, you got to be able to communicate that in a way that's going to motivate the people. And and a lot of times, what you're motivated by and what they're motivated by are completely different things. Bob, that's that's right. Um... One of the things we talk about is in order to be successful at this type of communication that you talked about, you need to have empathy. You need to, a leader can't just assume that that rank and file employee has any concept of the, of the broader picture. And they have to try to put themselves in the shoes of that employee and really speak to the expectations that that employee has. And it's a skill and we talk about ways to 
to, to handle that, but in, in essence, it's empathy. Getting at their level, understanding what's important to them, and trying to visualize it from their perspective. We use um, a, a kind of a, a metaphor, if you will. We talk about lenses. We talk about the leader lens. That's viewing the communication or the expectation from the, from the perspective of the leader. We, we talk about the employee lens you know, looking through that lens and understanding how they might view the scenario. And then finally, there's an organization lens, which is looking at it from the needs and perspectives of the organization, what is best for the organization as a whole. And leaders need to take these lenses out and, and use them, use them consistently, um, whether you're just a team lead over three or four people, or whether you're the CEO, you need to have a perspective of how your workforce views the situation, how you and other leaders view it, and, and, and most importantly, how does it work within the context of the organization's goals and purposes. And so that's, that's, that's what we talk about and try to encourage leaders, an, an approach we give leaders to use to try to solve that problem. Mm. Well, you know, it, it, you use a very powerful word there, leadership. And um, I think a lot of employees are looking for somebody that is a great leader in the sense like, guys, this is my vision. This is my department's vision. This is what I want to accomplish. These are the things that we have to, to, to do to reach that goal. And I want you guys to help me get there. But work with them on more of a collaborative level. It's like, okay, so what can you do to help us get to that way? Instead of saying, Joe, I need you to do X, and Betty, I need you to do Y. It's like, Joe, what could you bring to the equation, and Betty, what could you bring to the equation that you think you could really uh, do well at? And that way, you're kind of getting both. You know, you're getting the best of both worlds. Yeah, I think that many organizations today, and and a lot of the press that we're reading is how do I how do I as a company take best care of my employees that's great uh, love love to see it but we're thinking that we're perking our way to creating a, a great employee experience um, you know foosball tables don't do it. Um, it it's great to have taco Tuesdays but that doesn't necessarily create engagement what we're saying is yes we want to create the right environment but in return employees we need to have you also be part of that experience for the customer this is where what we refer to as the psychological contract comes in. So we talked about the brand contract. Uh, we also have a transactional contract. And the third contract is what we refer to in the book as the psychological contract. Uh, the psychological contract is that set of unwritten um, implicit expectations and obligations. So employee, I expect you to come here and here's your transactional contract. Here are the things you're expected to do. But also in that contract, these are the things that aren't necessarily written and it's not explicit on a wall poster, but I have certain expectations of you, employee, and you have certain expectations of me. It's not in your contract. It's not written down somewhere. But, you know, you expect to come here and you expect things such as growth. You expect to be able to make a, a, a difference. You want to have impact. You want to contribute to the world. Um, you want to find self-esteem in your job. That's not written in a contract anywhere. That's called the psychological contract. On my end, as an employer, I also have things that are not explicit in the contract. They're more implicit. That includes employee, I expect you to come here and I expect you to dedicate yourself while you're here for these eight hours to, to making our product and our company better. I expect you to go out of your way to take care of that customer. That's not in that contract you receive on day one, but it's 
part of the psychological contract. And it's that psychological contract that dictates whether or not the employee is engaged and whether or not the company gets results. Let me give you a, a scenario, an example that's close to home here at our firm. We have um, most of our, our employees are client service professionals. They're outward facing and they deliver um, consulting advice or they deliver data and data analysis. And we had an employee who um, was good, very high functioning, very talented, but hated to, hated to interact with people, just was not. And so her psychological contract wasn't being met. And we started to realize this and Tracy and I sat down and we've subsequently moved her to a different position and she's doing great and flourishing, but, but we had to understand that this wasn't a spoken thing. We had to kind of use, um, as you said, some leadership skills to sit down and figure out what was happening that wasn't uh, being talked about. And once we did, we were able to, I think, get alignment and get her into a, a scenario that's working much better. And you can't always do that. I get that. But, but, some, but you need to, to, to manage that psychological contract and be aware of it. Yeah, it's like um, you really have to be in the moment. You have to be able to step back and say, okay, so that was a great meeting with my team, but this one person just didn't seem to be there. I wonder what's wrong with her. And maybe having a second meeting with the person and say, hey, you know, how's it going? Is there anything going on at home? Or maybe you got it. It's it's up to them, the boss to start the conversation because because you're a boss. An employee has a very hard time, you know, getting the nerve to actually go to their bosses, hey, look, I'm sorry I'm in such a crappy mood last week, but I've got problems at home. And it's very difficult to do that. So do you think part of running an amazing organization is is having managers and, and senior managers um, kind of not forcing the conversations, but, but actually instigating conversations to help people uh, express themselves so that the manager can learn what needs to be done so they can implement change? I think you've hit on the heart of the book here, Bob, and that's an important piece. And Matt talked to you, talked just barely about, you know, the the lenses, the concept that we need to be able to look through an, another lens. When a leader is able to look through the lens of the employee, that leader starts to understand why an employee does something the way he or she does. Um, but the leader also still needs to understand, look through the lens of the organization and what's important. A lot of times, we're not very good at that interpretation. So I don't know what's going through your mind um, unless we necessarily have a conversation about it. So one of the things that we, we really emphasize in the book is that we need to be aware that those conversations need to be had. We need to discover what's in that person's psychological contract. And sometimes the only way to do that is to have that conversation. By the way, that doesn't happen through a once-a-year performance review. <laughs> It, it, that's, uh, you know, we're, we're fans of the performance review, but we also realize that it stops short in, in having those day-to-day -day conversations that need to take place. Well, I, I think, too, that, you know, if you're not practicing having conversations because having great conversations takes practice and you, you, you can't, like you said, you can't go once a year and say, okay, let's do an evaluation. Let's have our chat. You got to be talking to the person at least once a week. So it enables you to, to really figure out who that person is. If you're doing the type of custom, um, in-depth uh, grooming and, and development of, of, of employees that you're talking about in the book, you really have to have your head 
on right when you're talking to individual people because they're all different. No question, Bob. And we talk about um, these, you, you, you used a phrase just a while back and Tracy kind of, and I want to build on what Tracy was saying in response to that. You said in the moment and you are so right. We call them moments of truth and we, we talk about how some are just chronological. You have performance reviews, you have these um, weekly meetings, you have one-on-ones, you have a natural sort of way to deal with your employees and they happen chronologically. But there are also moments that occur that are outside of that, that normal chronology. And, and we call those kairos moments. That's a Greek word for kind of in the moment um, and, and those moments of truth that just happen, uh, irrespective of the time. And that might be, for example, an employee that is a star and then all of a sudden has a very poor performance review. In that moment, what are you going to do? In that moment, how are you going to have a conversation? How are you going to align expectations? So you have to be cognizant as you said, to be in the moment, both just as, as they normally come at you because the calendar is mandating that, and also what's out there that's not in the moment, that's not in the calendar, but is a key moment of truth for you to address. Because if you can bridge those moments, you're going to have uh, loyal employees, engaged employees. You know, we've, we've talked about your other book, Magic. Which book which order should we be you know, getting people to read? Should they read Magic and then this book? Should, should they read this book first? What do you think? You know, either way works, seriously. Um, this, when we wrote this book, we said, you know, we wrote the book Magic, Magic, Five Keys to Unlock the Power of Employee Engagement. And as we wrote that book, we found, by the way, that book was based on 14 million survey responses. That's, that's a huge database. Well, we asked the question, what really creates an environment in which employees can engage and we found those five factors which is the magic acronym as we uh, got feedback on the book they said we love we love magic um, we're, we're implementing it in the company um, now can you help us understand how we better create that environment what do we need to do to make it happen so we went back to our research database and said let's figure this out how can we help people that manager or that executive create a culture where magic exists and we added another 10 million responses to our database so it's now 24 million and based on that we said this let's write the field book let's write the guidebook and the employee experience became that guidebook both build on each other so it doesn't matter which is read first, but uh, both build on each other, and one is the companion to the other. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, um, what were your aha moments? Because you know you've got a, a tremendous amount of knowledge. When you're um, when you were doing magic, you know you experienced stuff and you got some feedback. But for this book, when you were putting it together, for for you, uh, Tracy and Matthew, what was your aha moment? When you say, "Wow, now I get it." You know, for me, it was the concept of the expectation alignment and expectation gaps. The concept that when those expectations aren't clear, that's the result. What the re result of that is going to be poor performance. And as we looked at really good people, this was both in our organization and in these hundreds of organizations. By the way, this this is really uh, a book written about a number of case studies of of some common organizations and some not so common or well-known. We looked at that and said, you know, these organizations have great employees. They don't go out and hire the worst employees, nor does that employee show up to work and say, I sure hope today is a horrible day. Uh, and what happens is 
that employee still ends up leaving the organization. And what we realized when we wrote this book is it's not because of even the environment. It's not because of perks and it's not because of pay and all this. What's happening is employees are leaving because their expectations aren't aligned. And employers are often not telling that employee, here's what I'm expecting. So people go along day to day thinking they're doing a fine job and all of a sudden they get out of the blue this wham that says, yeah, but you're not meeting my expectations. Well, that's because it's hard to hit a target that's not clear. That was my biggest aha was that concept of expectation alignment. For me, Bob, it was a little bit different. It was similar. It's for me, it's what we call in the book, the law of congruent, congruent experience, which is that your employees will deliver a customer experience that is congruent with or matches their own employee experience. And uh, just the other night we were at a restaurant the service was poor. My wife was ready to complain, and I said, you need to stop, and you need to realize that something's going on here, because this restaurant never typically didn't have service problems. I said, something's changed, because employees deliver typically the customer experience that's similar to how they're being treated. And that was my big aha moment, that if you want a world-class customer experience, you begin by creating an exceptional employee experience and the rest will take care of itself. Yeah, Matt, along those lines, we've, we've had conversations on this in our organization. It's actually changed the way we conduct business here. And that is the idea that A, our expectations clear and B, the concept of what's in the contract. We're often asking ourselves, okay, if this employee is not performing, what, what contract did we have with that employee? What expectations did we set? And more often than not, we find it's not because the employee didn't want to perform, um, did not want to give excellent customer experience at the restaurant. It's more often because that, that employee had a bad experience and those expectations weren't aligned. And it's changed the way we've thought about our own employees. Well, you know, it, it, it is interesting because um, I think that's what the biggest motivator is uh, for employee is being told what's expected of them, given a relatively clear path of how to do you know what them what they're able to do, given the freedom to actually do it their way, and then not have a draconian style management that uh, punishes instead of rewards. It seems kind of obvious, but you know, <laughs> once you read your book, it seems well maybe not so obvious. Well, we've, we've seen that all over the place. Um, when people read this book, and we've had a number of people uh, it, through endorsements and previews and helping us write this book, that have looked at that and said, yeah, this shouldn't this be common sense? And then they immediately follow that up, but yeah, but it isn't. Why aren't we putting this into practice? And this book serves a, as a reminder of here are those items that if you just stop and think about, just spend just a little bit of time, then this can dramatically improve the, the employee experience, which then translates to a much better customer experience. One thing I want to say is that it's, Tracy's right, and and you're right. You, you would think it's intuitive, but this has to be an intentional framework. What we say in the book is don't take for granted that just because you're smart, just because you did well in business school, and just because you have had high performance reviews over the years means you're equipped to have and build an employee experience. You have to think about it, you have to plan for it, you have to design it, and you have to work at it. 
And it's not just a, a trait that you think, oh, I just have it, or it's just the it factor. No, this can be learned and it can be mastered. And for most of it, it needs to be something that we work at as opposed to thinking it'll just come naturally. It, it doesn't. You know, I think you made a very good point there too, that um, it's an evolving thing. It's not something like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna execute this over the next three months and then boom, it's done. It's no, it it's going on forever. It has to become part of the culture. Everybody has to be aware of it all the time, every day, and that's what will make it a strong, um, efficient strategy. Not something you just like blast off in a three day seminar and then suddenly magically it's fixed. Exactly. Exactly right. So, you know, on that note, um, I want to ask, what can people do, our listeners do today, other than go out and buy your book, of course, um, to work towards that? I'll I'll take it at the um, team level and let Tracy maybe talk at the organization level. But at the team level, if if you have three or four direct reports or how many, what you need to do is a relationship audit. You need to sit down. And you need to sort of put that person's name on paper. And you need to ask yourself, how well is my relationship? Give it a grade, anything from an A down to an F. And then, and then and ask yourself, what, do you, what can I do to improve that relationship? And how do I improve that relationship to, make, to get the most out of that, to help that employee be the best? And so it's really a purposeful audit. Sit down and say, Okay, not not how are they doing? That's not it's it's more nuanced that it's not how is employee X performing. The question is is what is the nature of my relationship with employee X? Do we have clear alignment? And is there something I can do to make sure that w- we have a meeting of the minds that we understand each other? That's really what I I'm suggesting you sit down and ask yourself and begin working towards that. Hmm. You know what that would be a very good tool also for um, your family relationship too. He's like, why, why am I arguing with my kids? Why uh, am I in trouble with my wife again? Well, maybe you should sit down and do an audit to figure out who the problem is. And usually I would say nine times out of 10, it's got to be at least 50% you. I think you're right on there. And that's one of the things about this book is it's, it's not just written for the corporate environment. In fact, as we sat down and intentionally shaped this book, we said, who is our audience? And we looked at it and said, well, it's, it's any leader. Well, any leader could also be a parent. Um, I, we're going through the teen years with my fourth son. So we've been through it three times. <laughs> and so my wife and I had this conversation the other day that said, uh, because he didn't do something, I can't remember what it was, uh, something we'd asked him to do. And we looked at ourselves and asked the question, well, what's in the contract? Well, it sounds like a business term, but what we were really saying is what what is that expectation that we each have of each other and come to find out, we looked at ourselves and you were right. We were that 50% that said, well, it's because we didn't define what we wanted him to accomplish. We just thought it would happen. And it, it of course, didn't. He, kid's 17. You don't think that way, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, guys. So where should people go to learn more? Do you guys have a, a, a blog, uh, places that they can connect with you? We have a, a bunch of different possibilities. And I'll have Matt tell you about the website here in just a second. Uh, this book comes out January 30th. And so one thing is uh, feel, feel free to pre-order the book. We recommend this very strongly. Um, we do have blogs, and Matt will tell you a little bit about some of those websites. But uh, this is – we have a number of resources on these websites, including – 
a number of podcasts, a number of videos, things like this that basically tell you different sections of that book. So we're very excited about that. We also uh, work with a number of companies. We are a consulting firm that focuses on organization development. And we have the opportunity of going into organizations quite often and helping them lay out and understand what their their employee experience is. That happens through surveys or it happens through us working one-on-one with the team. But really, we find that organizations just simply don't implement this the way they needed to. And by just simply understanding this. So, Matt, would you mind just mentioning a little bit about the the resources that are available as far as the website, et cetera? Sure. If you can come, you can go to... um you can go to um, decisionwise, decision-wise.com, and you'll, that's probably the easiest landing page. Um, we have employee X um, as well, so we have different landing pages, but right now I, I direct you to decision-wise.com where you can uh, find more about our book. You can find it on Amazon. Um, our blogs are available on our own website as well as our contributions to Tracy and I our regular contributors to Entrepreneur and other business publications. So, Matt, that that Employee X uh, site was uh, employee-x, just the letter x.com, employee-x.com. There'll be a number of resources available there. Now, um, you know, we're in the world of social media. Where do you guys like to hang out? Are you Twitter people? Are you LinkedIn people? Are you Facebook people? (laughs) We do a little bit of it all. Um, uh, Social media is a big big way of, of folks understanding what we have. We don't, we don't have a marketing organization that does outbound calls, et cetera. We are very active on social media. We do a lot of publications, as Matt mentioned. Uh, we do a lot of, we have a lot of opportunity to speak. We write a lot in academic journals and, and social media, but you can certainly find me uh, on Twitter. I'm Tracy Maylett, T-R-A-C-Y-M-A-Y-L-E-T-T. Um, those websites that Matt just gave you are excellent ways to do that, but we certainly hang out on all those. We, we want to get the word out. That's what we're trying to do is help people have a great employee experience. Well, it seems to me that you've really got the, the social media thing figured out. Um, you know, one of the things I find frustrating is, you know, companies that um, – aren't using social media properly. So I would definitely invite all our listening audience to, you know, reach out and, and send these guys a tweet if you have a question, if you want if you're curious about the book, if there's something that you just don't can't figure out once you're reading the book, I'm sure they'd love to be able to sit down and, and chat with you because you can tell these guys are passionate about the subject. Oh, we love this stuff. Absolutely. The thing about it is is when you look at it what happens as the employee, we have to be careful on this one because what happens as an employee is you're, you're there eight, nine, ten hours a day. It's a big part of your working hours, but those also dictate what happens at home or socially or, or in the community. If I have a great employee experience, it spills over to the customer experience, but it also spills over to my family experience or my uh, community experience or my uh, church experience or my uh, political experience. It, it, it relates to everything that we do. I've been chatting with Tracy and Matthew, their book, The Employee Experience, How to Attract Talent, Retain Top Performers, and Drive Results. Amazing book. Highly recommend it. And um, yeah, it's out in a couple of days, so grab it while you can. Guys, thanks for coming on the show. Thank Thank you, Bob. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please share this interview if you think your network of business friends would benefit from it. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite Android app. 
Also, don't forget to check out www.businessbooktalk.com for more business book interviews.